Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We do welcome you, uh, those of you who are joining us online, those of you here at Central Campus, and also those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses down in the south and the northwest, uh, up in Airdrie, and uh, also um, in Bridgeland. This will be the final message in this series on Psalm 23, and so I'm going to ask you to stand and join me in one more time in reading this wonderful psalm together. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, Heavenly Father, thank you for inspiring David with these amazing words. And we pray that you would... Um, open our hearts right now. You would soften them as well. Lord, that we would truly hear from you and what it is that you want us to embrace and also what it is you want us to do. Give us the courage to follow through on whatever it is we hear you saying to us. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in this psalm, David is writing about the goodness of our God. And wouldn't you agree that it is relatively easy um, celebrating God's goodness when life is good? When our health is excellent, our income is flourishing, our marriage, our family, or romantic relationships are doing well, and we're in a good place with our friends? But what about when our body breaks down or when our job is terminated, there's no money to pay the bills or when our parents or our friends just don't understand or when our children are making poor choices. These test our confidence in the love and the goodness of our Lord and some of us may find ourselves at times tempted to throw our faith overboard to take matters into our own hands and to go our own way. And yet King David would say to us, I've been there and I've done that. And trust me, the worst decision that you'll ever make is to go through life and the dark valleys of life without God. And as we've seen in this series so far, David gives testimony to how good the Lord, his shepherd is. You can tell he's sharing from a deep conviction and his experience in life. He essentially says to us, when I was weary and exhausted, unable to carry on, my good shepherd made me lie down to rest, to feed on the truth of his word and to receive his perspective. When I was discouraged, hurt, when I felt inadequate, He refreshed and restored my soul by leading me to drink deeply from the quiet waters of his wisdom. When I was unsure of which way to go, what decision to make, he guided me along the right paths. And when I walked through dark valleys, I wasn't overcome with fear because I knew that he is with me. And even when I was unfaithful, When I blatantly sinned and turned my back on him, he didn't give up on me. He didn't leave me or forsake me, but he continued to pursue me with his love and his goodness. Which brings us to verse 5. 
you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, at first glance, it appears that David is changing the focus in verse 5. But he really isn't. The focus is still on walking through the dark valley. But in verse 5 and 6, David explains in more detail how God leads us and how he helps us to make it through the valley in a life-giving and a redemptive way. So let's examine how God leads us and helps us as we walk through dark valleys. To begin with, as we walk through dark valleys, the Lord our shepherd invites us into a deeper relationship with himself. Last time I pointed out that the dark valley is not the destination. Because David says, I walk through the valley. The destination is not the valley. It is a more intimate friendship with the Lord. And toward that end, he prepares a table before me. Now, what is he referring to here by this table? Well, as I indicated last time, after the winter months, the shepherd knew that there would not be enough vegetation to feed the sheep in the fields surrounding the homestead. And so in the spring, as the snow began to melt, the shepherd made preparations to lead his flock to higher country where the grass was lush and the water was plentiful. Before taking his flock to higher ground, a good shepherd would first make a trip, perhaps two or three trips, up into the higher terrain himself and deal with anything that might potentially hurt or endanger the sheep in any way. He would uproot and remove poisonous plants and weeds. He would locate the holes leading to the dens of poisonous snakes. Each year, like his ancestors did, he would remove some more rocks. He would clear a few more trees. He would burn brush in order to provide the best vegetation possible for his sheep. These lush valleys above the timberline were referred to as a mesa or tableland. And it is in this sense that the shepherd would prepare the table for his sheep. Now in the same way that a shepherd cared for his sheep, so our good and loving Father cares for us. Preparing a table symbolizes his loving care and his friendship. If you think about it, when you prepare a meal, it is usually for people that you love and care about. In fact, one of the things we look forward to is meeting those, meeting with our family, meeting with our friends around a meal. And so when the Lord, our shepherd, prepares a meal and invites us to his table, he's communicating several things to us. First of all, he's saying, you are my friend. Through Christ's death and resurrection, God has made a way for us to become his eternal friend. And when we accept his invitation of grace by faith and we sit at his table, he assures us that we are his, that we belong to him and that we're one with Christ. He assures us that we are justified that we are redeemed, we're forgiven of our sins, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He assures us that we may approach him with freedom and with confidence. Furthermore, when the Lord invites us to sit at his table, he's saying, in the same way the shepherd cares for his sheep, so I will care for you. So I will protect you and provide for your needs. And thirdly, when the Lord invites us to dine with him, he's saying, I want you to know that I delight in you. I want you to know that I want to spend time with you. 
I want to hear what's on your heart. And I want to encourage you and strengthen you and guide you as you go through the dark valleys so that you will not lose heart. Now notice at the end of verse 5, he says, my cup overflows. Now, of course, that in part is David just simply expressing his gratitude to God for preparing a table for him, for inviting him to dine with him, for caring for him and protecting him. But there's even a deeper meaning here that comes out of the culture of that day. You see, at that time, when you were a guest of someone, as long as the host kept filling your cup, it meant that he was enjoying your company. He didn't want you to leave. On the other hand, if your cup sat empty, the host was hinting. Maybe that he was tired and he wanted to call it a night, or perhaps that you're just a bit boring and it was time for you to move on. And so when David says, my cup overflows, notice he doesn't just say my cup is full. No, no, he says it overflows. He's also celebrating the special friendship that he has with his Lord. How welcome he feels to to dine with the Lord at any time and how grateful he is that the Lord, his shepherd, never tires of his company. His cup overflows. David writes, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Well, who are these enemies he's referring to? An enemy is anything that causes fear, discouragement, heartbreak in your life. Anything or anyone who seeks to prevent you from being who God made you to be and doing what God has called you to do. David says here, when you find yourself in the middle of a dark valley, before you take matters into your own hands, before you throw your faith overboard, remember that your personal God has prepared a table for you. And he says, come, sit with me for a while. Let me remind you of how much you matter to me. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge. He's our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God says, stay at the table with me for a while. Let me be your refuge and your strength. Let me shelter you for a time from that friend that you trusted who betrayed you and slandered you. Let me shelter you from that angry, cold-hearted co-worker, that devious business partner, those frightening medical reports, your overwhelming financial needs. Let me give you my perspective and let me give you my peace. You know, when we feel like our life is imploding, when we don't know what to do or which way to turn, we don't need to drive to a monastery to talk to God. We don't need to call a pastor or even a close friend. Nothing wrong with doing any of those. But you can come and sit at the table that the Lord has prepared anytime. The front seat of your car will do. Your office, your bedroom will do. Psalm 62 says, Pour out your heart to God, for he is a refuge for us.
Explain to him what's burdening you as you would to a closest friend. And as you do, I can tell you from personal experience that you will sense his peace envelop you and his perspective and his presence of his spirit renewing you. Now another enemy you face in the valley is Satan. Louis Giglio, he tells of a time that he went on a special date with his wife to celebrate their anniversary. And they went to a place that was special to both of them and everything was going really well until about 20 minutes into their special evening when suddenly a young man noticed him sitting there and said, Hey, I know you. I heard you speak at such such a conference. And then without warning, this young man, really nice young man, sat down at their table. And he said, you know, I've always wanted to talk to you about this particular issue. And this is just such a great opportunity for this. And even though Louis tried several times to communicate that this was a special evening for just he and his wife, the young man wasn't buying any of it. In fact, he congratulated them on their anniversary when Louis mentioned it, and then he just kept on talking. Well, as much as it hurt to do it, Louis finally had to ask him to leave. Now, Louis used that illustration to make this point in his book, Goliath Must Fall. Sometimes, when you're sitting at the table of God, Satan will suddenly interrupt and he will attempt to sit at your table. And he will tell you lies about who you are. And he will tell you lies about who God is. That God is not a good God. That you can't trust him. He'll hiss, if God is so good then why is all this hardship happening in your life? You know the devil is at your table when he says things like, this is not going to end well for you. You're going to fail big time. Everyone is going to know how incompetent you are. You're finished. You better bail now. You know the devil is at your table when he says, you know, you're getting a raw deal here. You're not being treated well. You're not being treated fairly at all at this table. I mean, have you ever noticed how much better things are over at that table? I mean, those people over there, they're just having a great time. They're living the good life. You should jump ship and go to that table. You know that the devil is at your table when he says things like, you know, you don't matter. You've never mattered to anyone. God doesn't care about you. You don't deserve to be at his table. You've blown it too much. You've blown it far too often. God is done with you. There's no way back. You know, in 1 Peter 5, Satan is described as an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, he's not actually a lion. He just roars like one in order to intimidate us. He wants you to believe that he's in control. He wants to make you feel helpless and hopeless. And yet the truth is this. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is the creator. And he is the sustainer of the universe. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Church, Satan is a defeated foe. Oh yes, he's still making some noise. But he's not in control. And his days are numbered. So we need to decide here and now not to let the devil pull up a chair at our table. We need to refuse to listen to that lying, scheming, accusing deceiver. And instead, we need to take our seat at God's great table and receive his peace by feasting on God's truth and feasting on God's perspective of whatever it is we're going through. That's the first way that God helps us walk through the valley. He prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. He invites us into a deeper relationship with himself. Secondly, he empowers us to do what we can't do. David writes, you anoint my head with oil. Now in ancient Israel, oil was used for various purposes. One purpose was to repel insects. You know, bugs bug us, right? But did you know that they can actually kill sheep? For example, if nose flies are successful in depositing their eggs into the membrane of a sheep's nose, the eggs in time become worm-like larvae and will drive the sheep insane. They get so irritated that they will beat their heads against trees, against posts, against rocks, sometimes in doing so, actually killing themselves. In that day, to prevent this and a host of other infectious disease, the shepherd would anoint the sheep with a mixture of oil, sulfur, and spices. Furthermore, oil was used to heal wounds. And thirdly, oil was used to indicate God's approval, God's presence, God's protection, such as when a king was anointed with oil at his inauguration. And so when David writes here, you anoint my head with oil, he's not just referring to God's protection and God's desire to heal our wounds and our hurts and our disappointments, but he is also referring to God's favor on us and his desire to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And what this means, therefore, is that God won't ask you to do something without anointing you with the strength, the resources, and the power you need to do it. If he leads you through a dark valley, he not only gives you himself, but if you remain in him and lead into him, he will give you what you need to walk through that valley. 1 Thessalonians 5:24 says the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Acts 1:8 says but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That's the anointing. And then you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, if you're not depending on Christ, if you're trying to fulfill your purpose and your calling in your own strength, well, you're going to be weary and you're going to be discouraged. You see, you can't make it through the valley or accomplish the assignment that God gives to you on adrenaline alone. No, you need God's anointing to do what he's called you to do. You may be filled with fear and insecurity. You may feel overwhelmed by the tasks that God has called you to. You may conclude it's just too big. And you may be right. If you are depending on your own strength to accomplish it. But if you put your trust in God, 
and you submit to him, he will give you the anointing and the power you need to do what he's called you to do, to overcome the fear you have about stepping out and engaging in what he's calling you to do. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through whom? Through Christ who gives me strength. You know what Christ means in the Greek? It means the anointed one. In the Hebrew, it means Messiah, the anointed one. It is the anointed one who gives you and me the anointing. Now, by the way, this isn't saying that Christ anoints you to do what you want to do. No, it's saying Christ anoints you to do what he calls you to do. And that anointing, by the way, is something we need to ask for daily. We can actually lose God's anointing through pride, through greed, through gossip, slander, refusing to forgive someone, or putting money, a job, or a person, or success ahead of God. And that's why we need a fresh anointing from God every day. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught that we're to ask the Lord to give us our daily bread, not our monthly bread, not our annual bread. It's so important that every day we confess our sins and come clean with God. Every day we surrender our lives totally anew to God again and ask Him for that fresh anointing. Not only to do what He's called us to do, but to help us to walk through the dark valleys. And so God helps us walk through dark valleys, first of all, by inviting us to his table, inviting us into a deeper relationship with himself. And secondly, by empowering us, anointing us to do what we can't do. Thirdly, God helps us walk through dark valleys by pursuing us with his goodness and love. David writes, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. In this, he's affirming that God, his shepherd, is always good, is always loving, and is always kind. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The Lord, our shepherd, is good all the time. However, there will be days when we're walking through a dark valley. A dark valley of tragedy, perhaps, of loss, of heartbreak, of pain, whatever it is. When his goodness and his love will seem like a gazillion miles away. And all we can do is embrace his goodness by faith. You know, when I think of this, I'm reminded of an incident in the life of one of our sons when he was just a toddler. He had taken a rather bad fall. He'd hit his head against the wall. And then he began to throw up a, a, a little while later. And when that happened, of course, we suspected a concussion. And we took him to Children's Hospital. The doctors decided an x-ray was needed, unfortunately, that involves strapping him to the x-ray table. Maybe they don't do that anymore, but this was like 30 years ago. As you can well imagine, he was not a happy camper. And I remember having to peel his arms from around my neck. As they strapped him down, he was crying at the top of his lungs, and the medical team noticed that me standing there wasn't helping at all. And so they asked me to exit the room. And as I left, he wailed uncontrollably and his arms were outstretched to me. 
And even though he couldn't talk through his tear-filled eyes, he was essentially saying to me, Daddy, I thought you loved me. I would expect this from this inhumane technician or that mean doctor over there, but not from you. Please put a stop to this. Don't leave me here all alone with these torturers. It was impossible for me to explain to him that his suffering and his terrified sense of separation was for his own good, that we were trying to help him. That it was love that required us to strap him to the table. How could I tell him of my compassion in that moment? I would have gladly have taken his place if I could have. But in his immature mind, you see, I was a traitor who had callously abandoned him. You know, friends, that incident reminds me that there must be times when God feels our intense pain and suffers along with us because he knows this world is broken. He's God. And his perspective is so much greater than ours. He sees the whole picture, the beginning from the end. How he must hurt when we say in confusion, Lord, how could you allow this terrible thing? Why me? Why now? I thought you were a good God. I thought that I could trust you. I thought that you were my friend. How can he explain within our human limitations that our hardship is necessary in this broken world? And that it does have a purpose which we will understand one day. In John 19.10, Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate says to him, Don't you realize I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And what Jesus is saying here to Pilate is, if my Father in heaven wouldn't allow you to order my crucifixion, you couldn't. And what all that means is, even though God is not the author of evil or suffering, he will allow it to come our way to accomplish good from it, either for us or for others. To bring redemption to a broken world. God could have kept Jesus, his one and only son, from going to the cross, but he allowed the crucifixion so that he could do a resurrection. So that Christ's death and resurrection, through him, our sins could be paid for and we would have opportunity once again to be in right relationship with God. Only a loving, good God would allow his son to die for the sins of humanity. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now this verse is not saying that everything that happens to us is good. It isn't. Life is not always good, but God is always good. Tim Keller says, if God withholds good things, or at least what we think are good things, he does so because he knows they would only be good in the short run. In the long run, from God's point of view, from eternity's point of view, they would be terrible for you. So for example, while accumulating wealth to live the good life, 
may feel great in the short run, God knows that it may destroy you in the long run. So here in Romans 8.28, God is not promising us better life circumstances or more money or more power if we love him. Because he knows if we don't hold these things with an open hand, they could destroy us on the long run. He's not promising us better life circumstances as defined by our culture. What he is promising us is a better life as defined by him. A life that reflects the character and life of his son, Jesus. In other words, God is promising us a life of true joy, a life of true peace, a life of humility, a life of integrity, a life of nobility, greatness, and eternal impact for God. A life that doesn't just soak in the goodness and the grace and the blessing of God, but a life that also passes on the grace and the goodness and the mercy and love of God to others. And even more than that, he's promising us a life that goes far beyond the 90 to 100 years here on earth, but a life that goes on forever. Which brings us to the final way that God helps us through dark valleys. He reminds us that this life is not all that there is. David writes, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And practically what David is really saying here is that we're going to live in the presence of God here in this life, but also forever in the next. And what that means is that when you're planning on how large, expensive, and opulent your, eternal, your, your earthly home is going to be, and how large a mortgage you're going to commit to and be financially enslaved to for the next 30 years, keep in mind it's temporary short-term housing. Keep that in mind. It's not your permanent house. But a major principle we need to take away from David's focus on eternity here is that life consists far more than the years that we live here on earth. In fact, this life is but a heartbeat in relation to the next life in heaven. Heaven is forever. And folks, that's a long time. And that changes everything. You aren't just concerned with the here and now. You have eternity in mind. You have a bit of heaven in your heart. And that gives perspective and it gives hope when life seems hopeless. When you're in the dark valley and you see no end in sight. In fact, the dark valleys, the, the loss of your loved one, the bad medical report, the collapse of your marriage, all these and everything else that's wrong and broken in our world serve as reminders that we are not home yet. That this isn't our permanent and final home. Those of you who have faced loss and hardship or are walking through dark valleys right now, and from your perspective, God just seems to have his hands in his pockets and you don't understand why. David's reminding us that this life is not the final chapter. That it's but a short time in light of eternity. And when we get to heaven, one day we're going to understand. One day we're going to see and declare that God is not only sovereign and just, but he's also good and gracious. And even though I don't want to minimize anyone's pain and suffering because I've been there, I know what it's all about. 
The Bible teaches that our suffering will pale in comparison to the joy and glory of God that he has in store for us in heaven. The Apostle Paul, he suffered beatings, shipwrecks, imprisonment, hunger, thirst, homelessness, was ultimately beheaded. And yet in Romans 8, 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Lee Strobel attempts to help us understand that truth with an illustration. He says, suppose it's January 1, the first day of the new year, and that first day ends up being the worst day of your life. You go to the dentist for a root canal, and halfway through the procedure, the freezing wears off, they don't have any left, and they decide to finish the job anyways without freezing. On the way home, you are in such pain, you crash your car and you total it. What makes it worse, you crash into your wife's new car. <laughs> Both of your vehicles are now totaled. You turn on the computer and discover to your horror that the stock market your stock market portfolio has taken a major nosedive, so much so that now you will have to work an additional 10 years before you can retire. Your wife is so upset, gets really sick, ends up in the hospital with a mini stroke. Your friend betrays you, spreads all kinds of malicious rumors about you. You get fired from your job. It is the worst day that you have ever had. But then imagine every other day after that is absolutely fantastic. On January 2nd, your rich uncle you didn't even know existed <laughs> decides to give you your inheritance in advance, every person's dream, and gives you a check for $42 million. A week later, a headhunter calls and offers you your dream job. A month later, Time magazine puts your photo on the front page under the title, Person of the Year. Your wife totally recovers and nine months later gives birth to your first child and it's a boy and she insists he be named after you. Your marriage is amazing and getting better every day. I mean, as the year progresses, your life just keeps getting better and better. So the next year comes along. It's January 1. And I come up to you and ask you, Hey, how was your last year? What are you going to say to me? You're going to say, Henry, it was fantastic. Even though the first day was a killer, filled with pain and suffering, when you look at the totality of the year, when you put it in that perspective, you're going to say it was an amazing year. You see, that's the perspective that God has. And that's the perspective that God calls us to have. A perspective that will bring peace in the midst of walking through the dark valley. Pastor Gavin Reed tells the story of a young man who fell down a flight of stairs and shattered his back when he was just a toddler. And as a result of that fall, this young man has been in pain his entire life literally spent years in the hospital. One evening, Gavin heard this young man talk about his love for God and the goodness of God at a conference. Later, he met with him, and he asked him, how old are you? And the young guy said, I'm, I'm 17. And then he asked him, he said, how many years have you spent in the hospital and this young man said, 13. The pastor was incredulous. And he said to him, 
Are you telling me, after all those years of pain, being in the hospital for all those years, you still think that God is good? And the young man smiled, and he said, God has all eternity to make it up to me. (laughs) And that is what David is reminding us of here, that the best is yet to come. Don't you lose sight of that. Heaven's a reality. First Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now as I close, it's important that I clarify that this teaching is not calling us to resign ourselves to fate or to an attitude that says, well, it is what it is. Whatever will be, will be. Not at all. David did not come to a place of resignation here. He came to a place of acceptance of God's sovereignty, of God's goodness, and also of God's calling and purpose in his life. God doesn't call us to resign to fate. No, he calls us to surrender to him and to his purposes in all that happens to us. Jill Briscoe points out that resignation says, it's all over for me, and lies down quietly to an empty universe. Acceptance, on the other hand, she says, rises up to meet God and says, now that you've allowed this to come into my life, Lord, what's next? What do you want to accomplish through this in me and through me? Resignation says, what a waste. How senseless, how meaningless this is. Acceptance says, in what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord? How do you want to use me and my circumstances to bring your goodness and light into a dark and evil world and a broken world? How do you want me to be your hands and your feet and your voice piece? Joseph wastes away in a prison for years. And yet God uses those apparently wasted years to develop his character and to prepare him to lead a nation and to change the trajectory of his people. The Apostle Paul is thrown into prison and he's chained to a Roman soldier for something that he didn't do. And it turns out that he's not chained to a Roman soldier. The Roman soldiers are chained to him because God uses him again and again to introduce many of those soldiers to Jesus Christ, ultimately changing the world from the inside out. One woman loses a child to a drunk driver and turns chronically bitter for the rest of her life. Another woman loses a child to a drunk driver and starts a Mothers Against Drunk Drivers ministry. You know, the Bible says that Jesus went about doing good. And friends, he did good because he is good. He is the Lord. He is our good shepherd. And when we trust him and give our lives fully to him, we're going to discover that because of his never-ending goodness and love, we lack nothing. When we go through a dark valley... We know that he is with us, preparing a table for us 
and anointing us with oil. Whatever dark valley we may be facing, if we want to live life, a life of hope, a life of, of meaning, the question we need to ask ourselves is not, why is this happening to me, Lord? Why are you allowing this? No, the question is, Lord, how do you want to use this dark valley that I'm facing to make you visible through me to others around me? Would you please stand for closing prayer? Let's open our hands to the Lord and just ask him, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it that you want to do, me to do about it? Father, we affirm along with David today that you are a good and gracious God. Thank you for pursuing us with your love, your grace, and your goodness, and your mercy. And I pray, Lord, that the words that have been spoken would not fall on deaf ears, that we would not just forget about all this but Lord that we will give you the opportunity and the invitation to show us what it is you're calling us to do about it for I pray this in your precious name and now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.